Hey, take your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 10. We're going to have some fun with these names today. As you're turning there, uh, just let me remind you, chapters 7, 8, and 9, they talk about revival. That's what Jason was going through with these kids, talk about what, just a kind of a glimpse even of what revival looks like. And before we move to the content of uh, chapter 10, I just want to say a couple of things about revival. We We were fortunate enough to talk in our small groups about the Puritans' view of revival just a couple of weeks ago, and so it kind of helped shape how we see Nehemiah, I would hope. And so let me just give you, these are the, this is the first thing on your notes, because this is important. Real revival starts with the Bible, right? And here's a couple other things. Real revival is not manufactured. It's not manipulated. And it's not man-centered. Okay, when, this isn't the content, uh, the thrust of today's message, but when, when we think about revival, our minds go to lots of different things. And we want to, we want to see God's outpouring biblically. We want to see any move of the Spirit through that grid. It, it, it just is something that can't be formulized. It's not man-centered. It's not manipulated and it's not manufactured. It's a work of God by the giving of his spirit. And so in these chapters, we would be wise to take note of some of the things that have happened. I just want to recap them really quickly. These things I think are in your notes. Chapter 7, the people are called out and set apart. That's that genealogy. They knew who was who. Who was an Israelite, who was not an Israelite. Who were the people of God, who were not. Chapter 8, the word of God is read. It's studied in the families People are convicted of their sin. Chapter 9, people remember and celebrate God's faithfulness. That was the festival of the booths, where they dwelled in booths that they made for about a week. That was to to celebrate God's faithfulness in bringing them out of Egypt through the wilderness. Also in chapter 9, we saw how the people confessed their sin. They repented of their sin. And today in chapter 10, we're going to see another important aspect of of revival that sometimes gets left in the dust. And it's commitment. Commitment. That plays into what revival is. Remember, again though, these things that we're talking about are not just a checklist for us to say, okay, we've done that. I've cried about my sin. Now I'm going to see God move in, a, in an incredible way. These, are, these things are not checklists that we just mark off in order to manipulate the Spirit of God to do something. <laughs> that's not how it works. We, can't, we shouldn't think that's, a, that's how it works, works in us or other people. So revival is, is simply the outpouring of God's Spirit on people who genuinely desire to submit themselves to Him more completely. That's, that's what revival is. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing, and we see rumblings of it, and we see it here in the book of Nehemiah, and it's, it's incredible, and we should pray for revival. That was the, one of the big marks of the Puritans, is that they believed that revival began with prayer. And so you would, you, we wouldn't see the outpouring of God in any kind of special way if we weren't praying for it. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought to be praying for it. In that study, um, 
they talked about how revival is not some kind of new form of Christianity, but rather a heightened experience of, of true Christianity. In fact, Ian Murray said, in such times of renewal, talking about revival, God blesses the ordinary means of preaching and prayer in an extraordinary way. So when we talk about having a revival or being revived, it's not that God uses some extra special means of doing that. It's the same that he's always used, the preaching of his word and prayer. And so we shouldn't consider any other thing either for revival to come about. God's people are changed through his spirit by the word. We might just consider that ordinary means of grace because that's the same way that you're changed individually. Whether it's an outpouring of God on a group of people or just on you, that's how you're changed. Through his spirit, by his word. And what we'll see in chapter 10 is that always leads to a changed life, a commitment, a change. Chapter 9 of Nehemiah ends with this lengthy admission of sin. We talked about that last week. Just They recounted all of the failures of their forefathers and of themselves. And it also was a recognition of God's enduring mercy, his faithfulness. Um, And both of those things, when we see them truly, when we see our own sin and when we see the goodness of God, it always leads to change. It always leads to doing something. So it was time for the people. That was the title of last week's message was it's time to make a decision. And the people said, we want to make a decision. Um, they were faced with this, same things that we're faced with. Continue down the path of rebellion with stiffened necks and hard hearts and those destructive cycles that we've talked about. Or change course by submitting to God anew. Nehemiah and the leaders of Jerusalem, they get together and they reminded us in chapter 9 that not paying attention to God's words always leaves us under the bondage of sin. You don't have to look back in your own life very far to probably see that that's true. You certainly don't have to look far in our culture to see that that's true. When we don't pay attention to what God says, we continue under the bondage of sin. And so something needs to give in this. And spoiler, it's not God. God doesn't need to be the one to give. By God's grace, people see their great need and then make a change. I use uh, a Christ-centered commentary, and the author of that is named James Hamilton Jr. And there he says this simple line that helps us sum up chapter 10 as we consider it. He said, the returned exiles in Nehemiah 10 are going to make a covenant to keep a covenant. Does that make sense? They're going to make a covenant to keep a covenant because the covenant is one that's already been there. It's already been established between God and his people. God did it with Abraham, right? Uh, He did it again with Moses on Mount Sinai. And so the Jews that came back, to Jerusalem, they would have understood this. They're not making some new promises to God. It's actually old stuff that they're just going to start listening to again. Here's from Deuteronomy 29. Here's just kind of, re- of a refresher of what that covenant said. Okay? So hear this. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root 
bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Do you hear the warning that's there? He's in, in fact, he uses the word beware. Beware lest someone or a group of people says, I'm fine, when in fact they have stubbornness and rebellion in their heart. And specifically, he says, who go and serve the gods of the surrounding nations. This was a big deal. okay? And this was the covenant, the gist of the covenant, that they were all just really recommitting to. They, they wandered for hundreds of years. And God was faithful, right? Their, their clothes and sandals, they didn't even wear out, it says. And yet as they wandered, what kind of people groups did they pass through? ungodly ones what kind of traditions and practices did they bear witness to well they saw people bowing down to idols worshiping false gods specifically in deuteronomy it talks about specifically idols of wood stone gold silver and these things are detestable to the lord the prophets of old Warned the people, they said, don't turn aside to these idols, don't worship them, don't allow these idols into your families by letting your children marry people from nations who worship false gods. This was a big deal in the, in the, um, Israelite covenant. And chapter nine made clear that the people failed at keeping it. They were not diligent at keeping the covenant, but God was. And so the covenant made perfectly clear that if they followed after the idols of the neighboring nations, that it would not go well for them. And if you review Israelite history, you see it. It's a cycle that we see. It did not go well for them. Their past was littered by people who made these kinds of mistakes by covenant breakers. And uh, God, in judgment, visited the curses of the covenant upon them in form oftentimes of subordination, of exile, of being in captivity to foreign nations. Uh, But remember, we said this several weeks ago as a quote, um, God wasn't just rebuilding a wall here. He was rebuilding a people. So keep that in mind. The wall's finished, right? That's a great thing. People are protected. They can worship freely now. Who and how are they going to worship? That's what we're nailing down. God wasn't just rebuilding a wall, he was rebuilding his people. One more thing before we read, um, I want to point out. The word, it says at the beginning, uh, we make, we make a covenant. That word make literally means to cut. Okay, we cut. So in essence, they're saying we cut a covenant. Now, why is that important? Well, in the Old Testament, covenants were cut, not made, because the parties making the covenant together would bring something meaningful, oftentimes some type of a sacrificial animal. And they would cut that animal and walk between the pieces and make a promise, a pledge, and a covenant to one another. A covenant always costs them something. In the covenant with God, we can think about this back in... uh I think it's Genesis chapter 15. I remember John Bateman preaching about this when we're going through the book of Genesis. Uh, He talked about this very story and about how God told Abraham, he said, Abraham, you go bring the animals. But then it's God who walks between the pieces and establishes the covenant. 
This is Genesis 15. So in the Old Testament, it would have been an animal usually that was meaningful for cutting a covenant. But for us, we don't do that sort of thing anymore. In fact, we rarely even shake hands when we're making a promise. Uh, we certainly, I've, I've never seen a wedding ceremony where husband and wife shake hands. Um, they, they seal their covenant with rings, right? Well, God seals his covenant with his people by doing the work, by doing it all. So for us, making a covenant might mean that we have to give up, not an animal from our flock, but maybe we have to give up free time. Maybe we have to give up a bit of finances, maybe change our habits a little bit. The people of God were going to cut a firm covenant here, and we're going to see how it cost them something. It had a personal cost. It was great and right that the nation looks at how things are going, and we can see some similarities here in our nation, but the people of Israel looked at how things were going. They reviewed their own history, and they said, man, we're in trouble. If something doesn't change, we're in trouble. And so it's good for them to look and see that something needed to change, but unless individuals come up and say, we are prepared to do something about this, more than likely things aren't going to change. And it's the same way in our nation now. If Christians don't stand and say, I'm going to do something about this, nothing will change. So family leaders, the community leaders, the spiritual leaders from uh, Jerusalem, they all come up and they sign their name to a covenant. 84 names in all. And we're going to read them, and I ask your apology up front. I tried to practice these names this week, and I'm still going to butcher them. But let's read this list of names, and then the part that we'll focus on the most, verses 28 through the end of the chapter, and we'll be out on time. Let's read this text, and then we'll pray quickly, ask the Lord to bless our time together. Chapter 10, verse 1. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Zariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Passer, Amariah, Malkijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Malach, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathan, Baruch, Meshalem, Abijah, Majamim, Maziah, Baljai, boy, that one's rough, sorry, uh, Shemaiah, these are the priests, verse 9, and the Levites, Jeshua, the son of Azaniah, Benuai, of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their brothers, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rahab, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Baninu. Verse 14, the chiefs of the people, Parash, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bunny. <laughs> I don't have a better way to pronounce that. Verse 15, Bunny, Asgad, Babai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adin, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Harith, Enathoth, Nebai, Magpiash, Meshalem, Hazir, 
Meshezabel, Zadok, Jad, Jadu, Jadia, I don't know. Verse 22, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshia, Hananiah, Hashab, Halahash, Pilha, Shobek, Raham, Hash, Hashibna, Mesa, Ahiah, Hanan, Anhan, Malach, Harim, Bana. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Verse 28. Hopefully this is a little easier. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who've separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of the law to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our God, his rules, his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. Verse 34. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses, at times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of the fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. 38. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe to the, of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers, where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers." We will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray. Lord, even in, even in this list, we see represented a people who are making a commitment, who are going out of their way to be identified as different, as special, as unique. 
Lord, may we as your people be unafraid to do the same, to stand up and be counted as different for your sake. May, uh, may we hear and learn today what some of these things mean as we don't want to be confused. Um, and so we need your spirit to teach us today. May he do the instructing. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for hanging in there with me with that list. Um, I, I read that because I, I just was thinking hundreds of years from now, if the Lord tarries and we're not around, if someone were to read the rolls of Ramsey Creek, maybe they'll stumble over Roderick uh, the same way I've stumbled over uh, their, these names. So uh, they're, they're significant. They're not, the names are not the focus of what we want to talk about today, but they're significant um, in this list too. Just look at the first ones that are written. Nehemiah's got his name first on the list. Uh, his name goes down first. Then the priests, verse 8, uh, the Levites, 9 and 10, the leaders of the people, verse 14, the rest of the people are mentioned in verse 28. This list is not probably exhaustive, right? There's more than 100 people or so in Jerusalem, and yet it's representative. Uh, similar to the genealogies in chapter 7, that the household and leaders' names that are given here show who was a part of Israel and who wasn't. Uh, for, for lack of a better way to say it, a more simple way to say it, who was in and who was out? Who's with us and who's not with us? The main point isn't the list here, but it, I think that we could draw some parallels to the importance also of church membership. Now, I'm not going to live and die on that kind of a ground, but um, I think this gives credibility to church membership roles. Uh, these men and women could look at their neighbors and they could say, you're on the list. Like, I saw your family's name on the list. Or maybe they look around and they say, their name's not on the list. They're not with us in this. Same way we can look at our membership roles and say, you're a part of us. You're not a part of us. And it wasn't, just like membership in church today, uh, it wasn't this way for them either. It wasn't like, a, well, I'm nanny nanny boo, I'm better than you. Because I'm on a church membership role. We've talked in our past two members meetings about how members saying you're a member and having your name on a role doesn't do a whole lot if you're never here. In fact, it can be more deceiving than anything. And so uh, this, this list, these names, they represented who was with us in this. Okay? Uh, so as the people joined together to make this oath, this promise, they would have known who was together with them. Look closer at verse 28 here. I think there's something else. The people of God are listed, right? Uh, the rest of the people, it says, the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants. But then see who else is mentioned. This is interesting to me. Uh, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Let's just pause there. I think this is interesting. And really pretty beautiful if you think of it in a New Testament context too, which we'll, we'll point to. Uh, it's almost like they were saying, well, maybe you weren't born into an Israelite, like Jewish family, but if you separate yourself from the practices of the world around you and you dedicate yourself to the law of God, you can join with us. You're included. You're here. I just think this is really beautiful. A way was made for even those who didn't have Jewish heritage to be a part 
of the people of God. We, we see the same thing. You can jot this down or flip back there really quick to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra is about a 100 years before this, and he's dealing with returned exiles and the temple, and they're celebrating the Passover in chapter 6, verse 21, and this is what it was said. Was said. Talking about the Passover. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. I think that's really neat and fitting when you consider that every believer now, you're not born into a Jewish family, you're grafted into the family of God. Just like these people from the surrounding nations repented of their sin, they turned away and they chose to follow the Lord and his law and they were welcomed in. And there's, there's actually something beautiful in this again. There's more to this. The people along with the Jews who returned with Jerusalem, they had separated themselves from something to something, right? Uh, Jason said that, that ice cream sandwich was made to go from the freezer into our mouths and into our stomachs, right? So the people of God are saying, I'm going to separate myself from something to something else. They separated themselves from the practice of idolaters, people that had idols in their homes that were bowing down to gold, silver, wood, rock. They they'd separated from them and they were separating themselves to the one true God, to the law of Moses, as the text says. So God's people were separating themselves from the world and to the ways of God. And I think that's important for us to hear. Because it's the same for us, believers today. When a person repents and believes, they do the same thing, don't they? They're turning from their sin and to Savior, to the ways of God. They're saying, I will follow, even when it's not easy. Because see, you, I don't think you can really turn away from sin sufficiently if you don't turn towards Jesus as Savior, right? Because you can say, well, I'm going to stop doing that bad habit, and maybe you're successful for a time. But more likely than not, your flesh will rise up, and you will pick it back up. But if you turn from that sin to the Savior, he's better, He's better than that thing, so you don't have to go back to it. So as Christians, you've said, I'm turning away from the world and to the Savior. Just like the Israelites were turning from the ways of the world to the law of God. They were making a commitment to obey. The covenant they make is described, look in verse 29, as a, as a curse and an oath. Kind of an unusual thing for us in our language. Basically, what this means is that if you don't keep the oath, the curses are expected to fall upon you. Okay, so there are real consequences for disobedience. If you don't follow the ways of the Lord, it won't go well for you. Talked about that already. Now, here are the, here are the, the, the signees of the covenant. Here's what they're saying. Here are the terms of the covenant, if you will. This is verse 30. They will no more intermarry with pagans. That's people that don't worship the one true God. Verse 31, number two, they will properly observe and keep the Sabbath and all that goes along with that. Verse 32 through the end of the chapter, 
verse 39, uh, they commit to support the temple ministry, to the work of God. They're going to support it. They're going to give to it. They're going to keep it up. Uh, Just again, this is not a new covenant that they're making. These things are all already established and were reminded to the people uh, when Moses was at Mount Sinai. God reestablished that covenant. He explained it again. And the first term of the covenant in verse 30 talks about uh, that they would no longer give their daughters in marriage to people from the surrounding nations. They would no longer take daughters from their surrounding nations for their sons. Um, let me be clear, because this may be unclear to, to some degree. This is not a racial thing. Okay, this this is not a racial problem. They aren't trying to simply preserve some ethnic distinction between Jewish people and non-Jewish people. Okay, the, the, God has graciously made a way, we've already said, for people even outside of that heritage to be a part of of their group by committing to the same things that the people are. So this was a commitment to not intermarry with people who had not been devoted to the same things that they were devoting themselves to. To the truth, to the word of God, to who God is, to the ways and word of God. In the book of Ezra, he deals with this thing head on as well. Malachi, as we've talked uh, in months past, we went through Malachi together. Chapter 2, Malachi deals with the same exact thing in marriage with outsiders. Uh, Honestly, it's not the last time we're going to hear about this problem, even in the book of Nehemiah. See, intermarriage wasn't a racial problem. It was a holiness problem. That's the key to this. It wasn't a racial thing. It was a holiness thing. They were joining themselves to families who did not know or care or love or follow Jehovah, the God of their forefathers, the one true God. So think about this question. Who is God? People have written some books regarding this. You could spend the rest of your life evaluating this question. He's the creator, right? He's worthy of all praise. Or is the sun a God? Is the wind a God? Is the ocean a God? See, that's really at the heart of the problem with marrying people from a different religious background as the one true God. Because you'd marry a person and they'd say, well, I... I, this God is for the wind and the, and the waves, and this one is for the sun. And, and you can look back at just history and see that there were gods to all kinds of different things. And if you've got one person saying that, and then the other spouse saying, well, I tr- worship the one true God, well, now there's going to be problems, right? Because that's at the core of almost everything we do and believe. Who is God? If he's real, we have to respond in some way. And this was the big problem. How can marriage be what God designed it to be if a man and a woman are not on the same page with this most fundamental question, who is God? And if that's the case, how can families be successful without an agreement on who God is and what it means to worship him? And so the people in Jerusalem said, we're going to make it clear on how we want this to go what we want our families to look like, how we want to honor the Lord in our marriages. And so they commit to marry and live so that future generations would know the great 
and awesome God. Our marriages are going to reflect that, they said. Uh, You know that the New Testament expands on this. Paul writes at length about marriage and the picture that it is. It is a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters. But marriage is not all about you and your spouse. We're fulfilled in that to some degree in a great way. And yet marriage is not the end all be all. It's a picture, right? It's a picture of who, of what? It's a picture of Christ and the bride, his church. And so husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives are supposed to respond to their husband's authority in a way that the church is supposed to respond to the, the, its head, Christ. And so it's, it ends up being this proper reflection of Christ and his bride. And this is something that Christians still want to pursue today. We want our marriages and our families then to display Christ's love for his church and the church's submission to Jesus. But the problem was the Jews had been abandoning that picture, that understanding, that truth. And they were marrying people who believed and lived untrue things about God. And so they commit to value God uh, in marriage and start living it out. That's the first point of the covenant. The second point is in verse 31. It addresses their beliefs and practices about the Sabbath. Now, this involves the weekly Sabbath uh, day each week, the sabbatical year, and then also the resulting agreement to cancel debts. And it's, it seems like there might have been some people in Jerusalem who'd found a loophole. We would never want to do that, right? Uh, it, it, the way that this is written and their commitment, it almost seems like maybe there were people in Jerusalem who were okay with purchasing goods on the Sabbath because non-Jews were coming in and selling them. Well, I'm not doing the work, so it's not a, a, a bad thing for me to purchase these things. We're not the ones breaking the Sabbath and working. We're just buying these goods. You see the loophole here? And so this covenant and the way that this part is phrased, it closes the loophole. They're saying, we're not going to do that kind of thing anymore. If, if a pagan brings in something to sell on the Sabbath, we're just not going to buy it. Our, our debit card is frozen on the Sabbath day. I was going to say our checkbooks are closed, but you guys don't use checkbooks anymore for the most part. So we're just not going to buy anything. So this leads to a deeper truth, and this isn't the, the soul of what we're going to talk about either, but um, this leads to a deeper truth about Sabbath. Is Sabbath about rest. Absolutely, it is. But Sabbath, honestly, is ultimately about faith. Let me explain how. Sabbath is ultimately about faith because the people had to have faith that God was going to take care of them on that day when they were told, do nothing. They had to believe that God would take care of them, even though they weren't currently working. I mean, just think think about your own thoughts sitting here in church maybe it's today and you're thinking of all the other things you could be doing and getting accomplished instead of being here right now we still in this way honor the sabbath by believing and having faith that no god told me it's right to be with his people god told me it's right to rest and so i'm going to believe that all the stuff that i could be doing now is going to work out because god's got a better plan than i do And that's what the core, what's at the core of, of the, of the Sabbath. 
Do you actually believe that God's way is best? This is really played out in the next part of, of, of what he's talking about in the sabbatical year. So every seventh year was a sabbatical year. And what was to happen on those seventh years? Well, you can see in verse 31, and we, this, the last phrase there, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every day. Every seventh year, they're not plowing their fields, guys. This is an agricultural community that relies on this for survival. It's not just like my garden at home where I like to have fresh vegetables, but I don't, I can still go to Walmart and buy some. That, they didn't have that option. This is their livelihood, their very life, and that of their kids. And every seventh year, God says, don't plow, don't plant, don't sow, or don't reap. You're not going to get anything from those fields. Let them lay fallow. Now, I don't know of a farm around here that does that. I don't know what it would look like if they did. But they were told to in the Old Testament... And what they had to believe was what God said, that in the sixth year, he was going to give them an abundance so that they would have more than enough during the seventh year. Now, that taught all kinds of things that we don't have time to go into, but it taught priorities, it taught trust, and it taught planning and preparation, right? Budgeting, maybe we'll say. It taught a lot of good and important practical things to God's people, And so keeping the Sabbath, both the day of the week and the sabbatical year, man, it really drove home the point that you had to trust God completely. You had to trust Him. You had to have faith. Add to the farming thing that in that seventh year, guess what? Everybody who owed you something doesn't owe you anything anymore. And... Likewise, if you owed somebody something, you didn't owe anything anymore. All the debts were forgiven. The slate was wiped clean, if you will. Now tell me, if you, somebody owes you money, you just say, forget it. Who's, where, it's not like that money just appears out of nowhere to pay the debt, right? You take it on yourself. You take that debt. You take that loss. But you do it out of love for that person. And that's what the Jews were supposed to do. They weren't doing this in chapter 5. Kids, that's why chapter 5's thing is telling the Jews to take care of Jews. They weren't doing this properly. They were charging more interest and cheating their brothers and sisters. He says, no, we're going to keep, they say, we're going to keep the Sabbath, the sabbatical year even. We're going to, we're not going to plow and we're not going to sow. We're not going to reap and we're going to excuse every debt. The only way that you could let a debt go like that is if you believe God is real and if you believe what he says. Forgiving debts required the Israelites to believe that God provides. Resting the land in the seventh year required the Israelites to believe God's promise to cause the sixth year to produce enough for several years going forward. So the point of the Sabbath wasn't it wasn't legalistic observances of duties or even avoiding other certain activities. The point of the Sabbath is to be people who trust God completely. And it's no different from us today. The point of the Sabbath is for you and I to trust God completely. 
do we? The third point of the covenant or obligation of the people was in verse 32 through 39. It was the support of the worship of the temple of God. Um, unironically, this is the longest section. We're not going to take a ton of time here. But nine times in these verses, we see references to the temple and the place where God is worshipped. This was a big deal, and it wraps up with the phrase, look at the very last verse, we will not neglect the house of our God. So we could probably assume that there was some neglect leading up into this point, that they were recommitting anew to say, no, we're not going to do it anymore If you think back to the Mosaic law, uh, the temple was the place where Israel enjoyed the presence of God a lot of times for a big part. So for them to be right with God, what were they going to have to do? They were going to have to go to the temple. They were going to have to bring their sacrifices. They were going to have to have their sin atoned for. The temple was the place where all of that happened. It was sort of the hub of what what they did in regards to their sin and in sacrifice and they were going to need to sustain the ministry of the temple so that they could keep doing this, right? If this is how they were made right with God, they needed this place to be around and to work properly. The temple and keeping it up was about the Lord. And that's the thread that I want us to see as we kind of wind things down. That's the thread that I want to see through these three points of their covenant renewal. Marriage exists to display God's love for his people. So what's the point of marriage? God is. The Lord is the point of marriage. The Sabbath existed to remind the people to believe and trust God. What's the Sabbath really about? Well, the point, the Lord is the point of the Sabbath. The temple and its sacrifices existed to remind the people of how holy God is and how they could be close to him despite their own sin. The Lord is the point of the temple too. You see the thread? The common theme here? It's as if the Israelites with this covenant were saying, we live for the Lord. We live for God. This then, if to say that kind of thing, and if you were to say that kind of thing today, this then would dictate all the same things. It would di- dictate who you marry. It'll dictate what your calendars look like. It'll also dictate how you live and how you worship and what you worship. If you say, I live for the Lord, all of those things have to follow. It's the same for us today. Now, we're not passing around a physical copy of a covenant for you to sign. That's not what we're going to do this morning. Though, I don't think we'd be too wrong even if we did that. But just like the Israelites in Jerusalem, we have a decision to make too. You have a decision to make this morning. Do you need to commit to live as though you know that the Lord is actually the point of it all? That he's the thread weaved through your life? If so, commit to the Lord in that. Do it. Today, say, Lord, I want to I wanna live as though you are the point of everything. Christ has come to free us from guilt, from shame, from condemnation and judgment because Romans 6.23 reminds us the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
So we're not under condemnation or guilt to do these things. And yet maybe we need to commit to the Lord again. Maybe we need to commit to the Lord in seeing marriage according to his design. Maybe we need to commit to the Lord in trusting him to provide and then actually resting in him and not worrying about things that we've said we've given to him. Maybe you need to commit to worshiping him according to his ways, not your own time frame, not your own schedule, not your own desires. Christian, here's something to reflect on this morning. Can you say that you are separating yourself from the world and to the ways of God? From the world and to the ways of God. Or maybe more succinctly, can I look at my life and say, I live for the Lord in every area. To be clear, you don't answer to me. You answer to the Lord. But if you're feeling like maybe you need to, to recommit to one of these things or, or all of this as a Christian, I'd encourage you to grab a brother or sister after service and just say, the Lord has impressed upon me. I need to make a commitment to do such and so differently. Will you pray for me? Will you check in with me and keep me accountable? We need to make a decision today too. God calls people out of the world to live differently from the world. And maybe he's calling you to say, what you've, the way you've been living is not the way that I would have for you. Maybe he's calling you out of that and to, to, to look away from your sin and look to the Savior. Make that decision today. Answer him in faith and come to him through Jesus, his son. It's the only way. And so as we uh, sing our last song this morning and just kind of reflect on these things, don't be ashamed to be counted for the Lord this morning. Again, I'm not asking you to write your name on a covenant paper. But maybe you need to just stand before your friend or before this church or before your family and say, I've blown it. But I'm recommitting to you to do this better by God's grace. Remember, uh, Jason quoted that song from this morning, the strength to follow his commands. They don't come from us. They come from the Lord and his spirit. Let's pray. Lord, if if you are through the Spirit calling to some today to join with you in this, to say I abandon my sin, myself, my old way of living, because I believe that God's way is better, that your way is better. So I put my faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that they would pray that, that they would come to you by faith, and they'd be genuinely and miraculously and wonderfully saved by the blood of Jesus. And I pray that that would be a process that just launches them into this joy-filled discovery of adventure on a life with him, with Jesus Christ. So Lord, speak into our hearts today, into our minds, and cause that to then motivate our feet and our hands for action so that you might be glorified in your people. Help us to commit 
where you're calling us to commit. In Christ's name I pray, amen.